Hi, everyone. We are here with Talking Points. Very excited to be here. Talking Points is the podcast by Influence Weekly, which reveals conversations from within influencer marketing agencies. My name is Maggie Resnikoff. I am the head of account management on the West Coast here at Open Influence, and I'm here with our CEO, Eric DeHaan. Hey, everyone. And thanks, Maggie. Happy to be here. Um, so, Eric, tell us a little bit about Open Influence. Yeah, um, you know, we, we've been around for, for quite a while in terms of uh, the influencer marketing space. I think we're actually one of the first movers, if not the first mover in the space. Um, but essentially, we're a demand side influencer marketing platform, which means we operate and do what's best for the advertisers and make sure that we're there to maximize value for the advertisers as we help them navigate the influencer landscape. We have several offices worldwide, so offices in LA, New York, Chicago, uh, London, Milan, and a small team out in Hong Kong. And we have a network of over 500,000 influencers and growing to run campaigns uh, across virtually all the platforms out there. Awesome. And so, yes, we're, we're really thrilled to be here. Um, so, Eric, Influence Weekly creates a really, really, really insightful weekly newsletter we got the chance to pour through the newsletter from this week. I think there are some great learnings, um, particularly um, Influencer DB created a study of the influencer marketing industry. They analyzed over 5.5 million Instagram posts. So the magnitude is huge. There were some really awesome findings from that, especially as it pertains to fashion, which I know is something that's close to home for you. What were your main takeaways from that? Yeah, I think I think it was interesting that uh that a huge chunk, I think about 30% of the um, of, of the uh, sponsored influencer posts were for fashion brands and the top performing posts were for fashion brands. Um, having my family's background being in the, in the fashion industry and really seeing that as the sort of catalyst for influencer marketing um, and mainly because, you know, the fashion industry is working with bloggers um, before, before you know, the influencer space really took off. When the mobile platforms came out, you had a whole new, uh, you know, sort of class of mobile-first influencers, and fashion was just sort of that natural fit. Um, so it, it's, you know, still to me pretty interesting and surprising to see that, um, you know, fashion is is leading um, the pack in terms of uh, sponsorships. I, th- I think another interesting takeaway. Um, and we just love to get your thoughts on this, but was to me, I was surprised to see uh, how many repost accounts and passion accounts uh, were leading the charge in terms of uh, popularity. Yeah, it, it, it definitely, it, it's surprising, but the more I think about it, it's not. If I'm looking to look at a, you know, a variety of really cool outfits or even destinations, the report mentioned travel was huge. I'm likely to follow these aggregator accounts or passion accounts where they are really combing through Instagram, pulling the best of the best content and reposting it. It's sort of like a compilation of everything that I want to see without needing to go to the individual brand channels. And it was interesting to see in this report that passion accounts actually have higher engagement, about 3.9% when compared to brand channels. I think we will start to see brands trying to lean into that more and more. But there are some guardrails that Facebook has put in place where, you know, you really have to be careful around reposting content that you did not create, especially in a sponsored manner. So it's definitely a trend to keep an eye on and something that I think we'll start to see um, brands really take advantage of. 
Yeah, and along those lines, it's interesting because like we, you know, rarely um, get asked anymore to um, resyndicate existing content on behalf of brands. It's really much so much so focused on influencer and native influencer content. Um, so, so, you know, again, I, I found that pretty interesting, but again, to your point, also not surprising that they are popular. Um, one of the other things that I thought was, was interesting, but again, also not surprising was the fact that two thirds of the brand content, uh, value and the earned media value that's being generated is happening in the second half of the year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, it's not something I think about regularly, but it, it makes a ton of sense, especially in our business, if we think through through each of the quarters, we really do see a ramp up. And I think it's for several reasons. I think a ton of planning goes into the front half of a year. And there are lots of projects that brands are working on that require that diligence and upfront planning um, and laying out the guardrails for how they plan to start out their first quarter. Um, influencer marketing is a really, really turnkey way for brands to um, go to market. It doesn't require months and months of upfront work. Um, the good, you know, I, I see our teams turn around campaigns in as little as a week. Um, as tough as those one week turnarounds are, it's certainly doable. So when when that budget frees up in Q3 and Q4, brands are really turning to influencers to activate um, in a very turnkey manner that drives results. And it's also thinking through what happens in the back half of the year that brands want to capitalize on. There's back to school. There's hol- I mean, the holiday moment is huge. And we're often counseling brands on ways to activate during the holidays while also breaking through the clutter because so much activity is happening in those later months. So again, um, a very interesting but not shocking point that comes from this influencer DB study um, from the weekly newsletter here. Just to um, shift gears a little bit, in terms of lessons learned, you know, there's not, there's always something to learn from other people's mistakes, and it's important to do so. There was a great article from this week's newsletter from Shoot Online, I believe, around um, just honest advertising and how important that is. I know the article broke down that um, the New York City Department of Consumer and Worker Protection actually sued some used car dealers for advertising without revealing the fine print, um, and they called it false advertising and other deceptive and unlawful trade practices. Essentially, they were promising lower prices than they were able to offer. They weren't revealing the upfront payments and down payments that would be required. So what are your thoughts? I mean, this is a great example, but just around honest advertising and how, as experts in this space, we can guide our clients to always um, really execute their campaigns in in an honest and authentic manner. Yeah, and I believe just, you know, looking at the story and diving in, um, used car dealers were advertising one price and then the fine print, they would sort of stipulate that that price uh, was not inclusive of an additional down payment that was needed. So, uh, I mean, you know, I I think advertisers sometimes miss the point uh, around transparency, right? It's one of those things where the rule of thumb I always take is... If it seems like it's deceptive or you're trying, if the goal is to pull a fast one on a, on the consumer, you've got to avoid that, right? Because ultimately consumers aren't dumb. We live in an age where the consumer is fairly sophisticated. And quite honestly, it's just not right to try to fool uh, consumers and customers into thinking one thing. You're not going to get away with it. You're going to road trust very quickly. Um, and in today's world, really, it's all about brand building, right? And if you're building a brand, you're building that on trust. 
and you're building on your relationship with the customer. And so if you want to violate that relationship, then by all means, go ahead and try to fool your customers. Otherwise, focus on honest conversation and real connections to be able to really uh, build brand equity. So true. I think it's a very short-sighted strategy to, you know, you might get someone in the door or get them to click through to your site, but once the jig is up and it's kind of revealed um, the, the true facts, where, how are you benefiting? Like you said, you, you said it perfectly, you're really eroding that trust. So um, I think it's something that more and more we have our clients turning to us as experts and counselors in the space and looking for guidance around how to ensure that they are not clouding their message by oversharing, but also really following those honest advertising practices. Yeah, and, and just um, you know, on the topic of, of lessons learned, uh, there was also another story that was interesting around Phil Morris, right? And, and um, working with influencers that were under the age of 25 or look like they're under the age of 25, which really went against their policy as a company, um, any thoughts there, um, g- given how we operate and given what you know about, uh, you know, sensitivities, especially with the highly regulated industry like tobacco? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it's super, super important with social media. It's not only the eyeballs of these regulators themselves that are on it. It's, you know, millions and billions of consumers that are exposed to this content. So. Going back to what we said about honest advertising, following these regulations is super important. Um, And we do see more and more clients really coming to us, having a general awareness of what those regulations are, but really leaning on us to not only bolster them, implement them, but also even go above and beyond and make sure we're taking extra steps. We've had clients where, you know, the regulations are that the influencer needs to be 25 plus, they want them 30 plus. Um, And it's not just about being 25 plus, it's about looking 25 plus. And then the next step is, okay, we've tackled the influencer's age. What about their audience? Because really when you're doing influencer marketing, it's, it's the influencer is equally, and you know, the audience is almost more important than the influencer themselves. They're the ones that you're delivering this message to. So it's not just the influencer needs to be a certain age. They're, you know, at at this point, I think it's 70, 75% plus of their audience needs to be a certain age. So I think that those regulations, although they can be a little bit of a stick in the mud, we cannot take them lightly. It's just not worth it to expose um, influencers and especially brands and our clients to that risk. Um, and it could really be the downfall of a great campaign if you're not diligent. So it's super important. Yeah. And to me, it was really a shock, right? Thinking like, how could this have happened? Knowing mm-hmm. that when we work in a regulated industry, like take the automotive industry, for example, we're running background checks on the influencers. We're verifying identification. We're making sure they have active driver's licenses. We're making sure the right insurances are in place. We even have guidelines to make sure that at all times they have two hands on the steering wheel. And so I find it really amazing that you know such a big mistake could have happened with a company like Philip Morris, um, you know, at, at this level. I, I, yeah, I think it is. It's it's something to keep an eye on. I'm sure it's not something that will disappear. I think we'll continue to see fumbles as people learn the best and most honest way to execute these campaigns. And to your point, our account management team, I mean, we have to hold them to a very, very high standard of diligence when it comes to the vetting process for these influencers, um, because there's simply, you know, there's no room for error when it comes to this. And so the best thing that brands can do is learn from others' mistakes, implement the policies that are in place. They're there for a reason. Um, and, and that's really the best way in, in spaces that require um, these guardrails, like, like what you said, tobacco, 
alcohol, auto, um, and all of that. And that's actually a perfect segue to our next point here around some interesting trends that came up in this week's newsletter. Um, there's an article in this week's newsletter from Fox um, around advertising for the gun industry and how um, gun enthusiasts and brands and lobbyists are finding loopholes um, in an area where Facebook may not really provide a lot of opportunity to advertise something like guns. Um, it's Guns are obviously quite a polarizing topic, um, especially when it comes to the advertising of them. So that article really went through how brands are doing it. Anything stand out for you, Eric? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think a lot, right? I, I think um, one hand, again, being in this industry for so long, um, I'm not really surprised. Um, there, there's really an influencer for everything. Um, you know, it's kind of like that old Apple commercial, you know, there's an app for that. Well, there's an influencer for that. Um, I, I think what's interesting around guns and social media specifically with a lot of the school shootings that have been happening here in the U.S., um, and even with, I believe, in, in Christchurch, with a you know live streaming of the shooting and just sort of showing this this sort of weird relationship between like the terrible violence of a school shooting or a, a shooting in general and uh, and social media, uh, it just seems like a very gray area and sort of dangerous area to be treading in. Um, you know, taking aside any sort of political views and and perspectives around the Second Amendment, it, it does just seem like a very sensitive sort of topic. Um, and I think in terms of branding and from a branding perspective, uh, you know, in this case, you know, most brands are extremely opposed to any sort of controversy. And these influencers are going to be limiting themselves uh, in terms of what kind of sponsorships they can do. And when it comes to even promoting guns, uh, you know, there are huge limitations on that. Uh, as well as gun accessories. And so, you know, I, I kind of look at this from a marketer's perspective of, you know, do these people pigeonhole themselves in their in terms of their ability to brand? Yeah, I think that's, the, I, it, I think that is the case. And, and maybe this is an assumption, but we have so many clients that come to us, even the clients that aren't as brand safe, and they want us to do a vetting of our influencers to vet for these types of things, you know, posts about, drugs or even alcohol and especially guns and violence and strong political or religious references in today's climate it's so important for for brands to remain relatable and and maintain a brand safe approach because social media is brutal and people are going to come after you and they you know there's those keyboard warriors that we always talk about but there no one holds back when it comes to criticizing brands for how they choose to go to market so definitely i would say um, I think the space for influencers promoting guns is pretty niche, and it does, I think, limit them to brands that are happy to play in the sandbox with with um, gun brands. One thing that I, that really stuck out to me and goes back to our conversation around learning from others' mistakes and honest advertising. I think disclosure is such a huge topic of conversation this, these days as it pertains to influencer marketing. Uh, the FTC has its eye, you know, has a magnifying glass on brands and, and how they're working with influencers. And including that hashtag ad, hashtag sponsored, or that paid partnership tool is crucial. And not including it really exposes brands to risks. I noticed in this Vox article, they kind of it was a subtle call out, but that none of these influencers posting about guns are including disclosure. So while whether the gun is a gift or they are getting paid on top of it being a gift, I think the article alluded that they were being paid. Um, 
there's no disclosure. And that goes back to that Facebook's guidelines around what can and cannot be advertised. So while this may be seen larger picture as a loophole, I don't think it is because they aren't really positioning this as an ad, although it is an ad. Right. And, and it's it's an interesting position, right, where, um, you know, they could on one hand be violating Facebook's terms or on another violating the FTC's terms. Um, and, and, you know, Facebook tends to sometimes have some gray areas in terms of its policy where it'll treat native advertisements very differently than paid promotions. But given the sensitivity around guns, it, it, it tends to, you know, be a very tough area to to play in, especially if you're not disclosing that. Mm-hmm. It really, it, it really does. So definitely something to keep an eye on. Um, not something that is likely to show up in feeds unless you are a gun enthusiast. So it's a little bit of an underground trending topic, but something that um, I'm, I'm, you know, we'll definitely want to see where it goes and whether more re- regulations are put in place. Um, changing topics a little bit here, um, some other really interesting trends came up in this week's newsletter around micro-influencers and um, also marketing to Gen Z. So just starting with micro-influencers, Eric, I think it's something, it's an ask that's come from clients more and more these days. It's no longer about that short tail impact that you get from a huge celebrity endorsement. It's about ongoing ambassadorships, evergreen programs, keeping a steady drumbeat. Um, Would you agree that more and more we're seeing micro-influencers being activated and sort of what, what power lies within that smaller group? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, there, there's been a trend where uh, everyone started out by looking at the big name celebrities, right, and thinking, okay, this is who we need to work with. And realizing that, you know, these big celebrities don't have the same sort of impact as people thought, right? They're seen as almost like corporate entities, almost like marketing brands on, in a sense of they don't have that same authenticity. So there's been a big, I think, course correction or overcorrection towards micro-influencers, right? If the big names are, you know, less authentic, maybe the very small names are highly authentic. And there's a lot of truth in that. I think the one thing to consider are just the economics, right? As a marketer, understanding not just the fact that if you're engaging with these micro-influencers, yes, you, you might have to pay them, but more so the time you're investing with them, they're people, right? So you have to invest invest time communicating with them, coordinating with them, building that community out. The juice might not be worth the squeeze on that one, um, just given the economics. And so, um, you know, we see a lot of brands jumping into the micro-influencer or onto the micro-influencer trend and band, bandwagon just to realize like, you know, maybe they went too deep into on the micro-influencer side in terms of the spectrum and they shift over more towards the uh, the mid-tail influencers. So, um, you know, what, what I think micro-influencers are excellent for actually are things like content and content usage rights. Um, you could work with really authentic micro-influencers to be able to generate great content to then repurpose in other places. Um, you know, their distribution might be pretty minimal given that they might only have, you know, 5,000 or 10,000 followers. But um, they could be a great source for brands to work with in terms of just content creation. Yeah, I agree. And I think also another, another in thinking of the great uses for micro, um, I have a PR background, so I always think through that lens. But, you know, those seeding campaigns where you're just shooting out a bunch of product and you want people to review it and there's it's much more transactional. There might not be a contract in place or compensation. It's much more of that earned approach. Um, and I think you're right. It's that mid, mid-level group 
where you find you you not you get the reach that you want and the engagement you want and the economics really makes sense. Um, just to jump to our next topic here related to Gen Z, I think Gen Z is probably the focus for a lot of brands. They are the generation that has grown up with technology. They've been on social from the onset. So they definitely approach it a very different way than other generations will. And it's really important for brands to craft and tailor their strategies around their audience and their generation. Um, it was, it, again, another thing that stood out to me that I might not think about, but wasn't surprising. It goes back to our point around brands shifting away from celebrities. 70% um, of teenage YouTube subscribers said that they relate a lot more to YouTube creators and influencers than they do to traditional celebrities. What are your thoughts on how brands are, are, a, are what should brands be doing um, or what are they not doing as it pertains to really connecting with that Gen Z market who are obviously extremely important? Yeah, I mean, when you think about Gen Z, right, you have to think about a generation that grew up really on what we call the second screen, right? So they grew up with an iPad in hand. They grew up with a laptop or a phone in hand. And so um, it makes sense that they're looking at creators on platforms like YouTube and Twitch before they're looking at traditional, um, you know, celebrities that are, you know, maybe featured on movies or TV. And so it makes complete sense that you have a whole generation that doesn't necessarily uh, look to celebrities, right, as, as a source of trust or a source of truth, but is really looking more so to influencers and content creators on the platforms they grew up with. Uh, I, I think the other thing that's really interesting with Gen Z is, you know, their susceptibility to advertising, right? They're, they're so used to being inundated with ads that they've really just learned and grew up learning how to ignore them. Um, you know, I call the little ads on YouTube skip ads because you rarely look at anything else other than the word skip ad. And you're just waiting for the time to, to end to click through it. And I think Gen Z is wired um, in, in that sense. I also think, um, you know, Gen Z has just a general sort of banner blindness to where ad blockers are really, you know, re really sort of a main thing for, for that generation. Um, but, you know, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what your thoughts are on any sort of other trends around, around Gen Z that are interesting, but... I think it's a for, for marketers, especially traditional ones, it requires them to really shift their thinking in terms of how to view Gen Z as opposed to like a Gen X or Gen Y. Mm -hmm. I think I think that agreed on all that. And, and another thing about Gen Z is that they have such a, a trained eye when it comes to sponsored posts. Um, and so that, you know, telling an authentic, an authentic story is super, super crucial in order to draw them in, which is why they relate so much to people and influencers as opposed to celebrities. It's actually the perfect segue to another article that was included in this week's in, um, newsletter from The Drum, which um, a really interesting story from Whaler, um, a neuroscience study, which claimed that influencer ads are 277 percent more emotionally intense for viewers than TV ads and 87% more memorable. So that doesn't just refer to Gen Z, that's across the board. We're seeing that influencer ads are just so much more impactful and relatable for consumers. And that's why you know it doesn't come as a shock that media dollars are being shifted to influencer marketing. Um, and Whaler really recognized that you know 
the need to not only understand what is driving this, but also how it can benefit brands and how do brands capitalize on that emotional connection. Um, I know we're, we're running short on time here, Eric, so I want to get your thoughts on one last topic that I'm actually not super well versed in. So I'm going to let you take the lead. But um, in, certain, in terms of trends that we're seeing, let's talk a little bit about Facebook Libra. Yeah, um, it's like Bitcoin on Facebook. <laughs> um, uh, I think to take a step back, um, there's a bigger trend that Facebook's been taking on, which comes down to Facebook integrating payments into the platform. Uh, I, I think you know it, it's a platform that's been obviously a social platform, and being able to accept payments and transact is going to turn into a commerce platform or a social commerce platform. Um, and so we're starting to see that now with Instagram being able to, uh, you know, allow people to put in their credit card information and transact on the platform. I think Libra is a step in that direction that's going to really facilitate peer-to-peer transactions, um, you know, help Facebook build trust in terms of, um, you know, as a, as, a, as a platform for people to put their money into or transact money through. And if you think about cryptocurrencies, right, they're really all about peer-to-peer transactions. And so rather than like a, you know, a business-to-consumer transaction of buying something, which again, Facebook's doing, um, this will allow people to interact. And I think what's really interesting there is all the interesting sort of ways that's going to ripple across not just the social landscape, but the influencer landscape. Um, how will influencers interact with one another? How will influencers interact with their audience? And what are all those moving parts looking like? Mm-hmm. I think that, yeah, I, I, I think the larger takeaways from this, this whole week's uh, newsletter is brands are having to be smarter, um, more savvy as consumers themselves get more smart and savvy. Um, it's a very fast moving industry, lots of new trends coming up each week. Um, thank you to Talking Points for having us here this week. Um, it's been great to read through all of these trends and more trends, you know, every week new trends are arising. So um, definitely be sure to subscribe to Influence Weekly for insights on the influencer marketing space. And Eric, thanks for chatting through all this. Thank week. you, Maggie.